Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Well, let's pray. We're going to get started. We're going to try and cover chapters 15 and 16. 15 is pretty short. and they Actually, 15 through 18 really kind of go together, but we can't cover all of those, or I can't. Um, so let's pray, and we'll get started. Father, once again, it is good to be here. And Lord, once again, uh, as we look at Scripture, it speaks to us in so many ways. It is indeed alive and powerful and able to, Lord, deal with all the things in our lives. It is profitable for correction, for reproof, for instruction, that we might be established. And so speak to us through what we read and go through tonight. I pray for clarity of thought and the ability to share these things. And God, by no means do we cover everything that is involved with this, that we could read these scriptures and go over them a hundred times and get more and more and more. And so I pray, Lord, if anything, this will just help us to be more hungry, that it will help us to be more curious and have more questions and desire to seek after you. And we do pray your blessing on our time in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Revelation 15. Again, every week as I start reading the passages, I always have to kind of read it, step back, think about it, read a few commentaries, step back, think about it again, and try and process things. There's so many things that I really, you know, would in an, uh, another uh, book and passage get more in detail into it because there's a lot more knowledge on my part maybe or information on what is being spoken but here in the book of revelation there are some things and it's just like well it could mean this it could mean that it could mean a lot of things but there are some things that i think we can pull up that it does mean that helps us to get an idea of what john is speaking about overall so let's read chapter 15 Verse 1, it says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Remember, a sign then is telling us something, right? He's giving us some things that are meant to tell us something. A sign is pointing to something. And so right off the bat, we know that this isn't something that we need to take in a literal sense with some of the things that are being described here. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath 
is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They had harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant, Moses of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds. Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts or judgments have been revealed. After this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. I want to look at what are the judgments of God, because it's important to recognize that in verse 4, when it says, for your righteous acts, it is talking about your judgments. The righteous acts are connected to that idea of his judgments being revealed. What are the judgments of God? How have they been revealed? And how has it brought the nations to worship? Remember in Exodus when Moses went to Pharaoh and he said to let the people go, he wanted them to go so that they could go and sacrifice to their God and worship. Right? It was so that they could worship God, and that was very central to the idea of the Exodus, is we need to be able to worship our God. And so the plagues, the judgments that took place were so that the people of God could actually worship. There was a sense of judgment that took place in the Red Sea, destroying the Egyptian army. And here we see that sea. We'll kind of look at that a little bit. Uh, the idea of judgment with God is as much a cause for celebration as it is anxiety. I know that I, from my background, when I think of the judgment of God, it is always in kind of a negative light where it's a bad thing that's going to happen to the people who have done bad things. But there is a positive element that of judgment that we need to recognize, and it's really been talked or kind of uh, hinted about since chapter 6 when you had those people who were martyred saying, how long, how long will we have to wait until you bring about this judgment, right? And Psalm, where is it? Psalm 98, it talks about the whole creation Rejoicing, and that's plants, mountains, animals, singing for joy because God is coming to judge the earth. Right? All of creation is singing because God is coming to judge the earth. Why? What's the good news about this judgment? Well, imagine you live in a small village that's outside of a major city, outside of Judea. 
and there is no judge who is there to rule over the matters that take place in your village. And so if someone is sold something that was misleading or broke or someone was cheated out of some land or someone was robbed or something was stolen and they found someone who had taken those things, all these things could not have actual uh, legal ramifications until a judge would come by and then bring about the verdict to settle these matters. And so when the judge came, even though it was infrequent, when he comes, the caseload is huge, right? Because of all the month's problems that have built up. You know, there's all these things that have been built up over the hundreds or however many people are part of this village. And the judge is going to have to keep order. He's going to have to calm everyone down, both the people who are being defended and the people who are being accused. He has to uh, hear each of their case properly. He has to hear it fairly. He has to take special care that uh, no one tries to you know, uh, swayed him in the wrong way. He has to refuse bribes. He has to make ultimately decisions on all these numbers of cases. And then the hysteria is finally calmed when the judge passes these verdicts. Order is restored, right? The cheats have been found out. Those who have done things and taken things unjustly have to return them, and people are vindicated for the wrongs that are done to them, and finally they see justice. Imagine that now from a small village to the concerns on a global level, right? Imagine what is happening, not just with the people, but with all of creation. The idea of judgment is not so much just going to find someone guilty, but it's also to bring about vindication. It's also to bring about justice. It's about wicked empires and all the evils that fall down from the highest officials to the lowest peasants. And there is no judge to bring about justice because they all belong to the same wicked system. So the cry goes up to God, even as it did with Israel in Egypt. And God's actions on behalf of Israel is a great cause for liberation and celebration. And the same thing is being proclaimed here. All the injustices, all that is wrong, God is going to bring judgment to make it right. And so there's a lot of people in this sense that are going to get what's owed them, what was taken from them. The wrong that was done to them is going to be righted. How and in what ways I can't even begin to imagine we're talking about something that's been going on for centuries, right? In Psalm 58, 11, it says, Then people will say, Surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. All these things are waiting for this time. When, O oh Lord, how long before you bring this justice and so now John is giving this illustration of this justice. And from there they will come to worship. 
From there, they will come to give to God. John and the early followers of Christ, there was once a great act of judgment, right? Above all others, which was already compelling people to come and worship Israel's God. God had raised Jesus from the dead, right? Jesus was accused of being a false Messiah. God had reversed the verdict of the human court by the resurrection, demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah. The resurrection proved that the cross itself had been the great act of judgment. It was the act of judgment to all those who said, no, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. We're going to put this to end. We're going to squash this. We're going to end this man and all he stands for. And now the cross is the judgment. The resurrection is the justification that takes place, God reversing that judgment. It's proved that the cross itself was that judgment in which sin, death were themselves condemned and executed, right? God's judgment was displayed so that he could see that he is just and Christ is dealing with all of us, not just in a substitutionary way, but in a way of recognition, in a way that God says, I see and I'm not letting it go and I'm dealing with it and I will deal with it on the cross. My judgment is final and Christ is enough. Having done all this, Jesus the Messiah, Israel's God, is demonstrating that the followers of Jesus were his true people. Through their faithful testimony to Jesus, right? Even though they risk their own lives. It's important to see that it's the martyrs who have been victorious over the beast. That's what it says in verse 2. When it talks about, right, the beast in the image and over the number in its name. That's those who resisted, did not partake of all that was taking place through Rome and all that Rome represented. And so the martyrs are the ones who are victorious over the beast. How were they victorious? They were martyred. They were faithful. They were like Christ. And that's really an important part here. They discovered that they have come through death just as Israel had gone through the Red Sea and are now standing, singing a new song of praise for the act of judgment that God has performed. Right? As the children of Israel stood before the Red Sea, here there is a sea of glass, right, that's pictured here. Again, sea often stands for judgment, or waters often stand for judgment. Even in baptism, there is this idea of, you know, you've gone down, you died with Christ. God's judgment is done with that, with your identification to Christ. And now there is the newness of life. And it's interesting because the song that's sung in Deuteronomy chapter 32, which is where this is kind of pulling from, this same song. It's a very abbreviated version, but that's known as the song of Moses and Joshua. Joshua in the Greek is Jesus. So it's the song of Moses and Jesus. And here John says the song of Moses and the Lamb. He's taking what was there, the picture of the Israelites coming out of Egypt, out of that bondage, singing that song. And that's the picture he has for those who have overcome the beast 
and all that's taking place with the beast. The song in the passage, again, from Deuteronomy 32, focuses on a different part of the Exodus story. The plagues in Egypt have reached their climax, and Pharaoh and his people have consented to finally let Israel go. They have gone through the Red Sea, sung the song, arrived at Mount Sinai, and there the fire and smoke of God's revelation to Moses regarding instruction of the law, the tabernacle, the place of witness, or the meeting. Uh, All are being revealed where God himself would come to meet with his people. It was a foreshadow of the tabernacle that would be built in Jerusalem. And now in this vision, there's a fresh understanding. John sees that the heavenly throne room is at the heart of the heavenly temple and has a tabernacle of witness within it, that this tabernacle has been opened, not just to let Moses or anyone in, but to let these angels out carrying the seven plagues, not for Egypt, but for Babylon and for the world that had fallen under Babylon and her seduction, right? And so there's a lot of figurative things, again, signs that are taking place, where the exodus in Egypt is now taking on a different light where God is finally, from his presence, bringing about what is to be done and right in the world. The smoke that we see is a familiar picture. It was that in the tabernacle in Exodus. and It was in Isaiah's vision of the temple in chapter 6 of Isaiah. Solomon's dedication of the temple, 1 Kings chapter 8. The presence of God is shrouded in this smoke. It's a solemn moment. It represents, it, it's heavy with the presence of God. The idea of God's glory is weight, right? The idea of glory is the idea of something that is weighty. And so we have that picture here. The new song, it's joyous, it's heartfelt. Deliverance has occurred, but now we are coming to this great showdown, right? We left the dragon and the two beasts two chapters ago, and they have drawn many into this destructive ways. And it's time for the destroyer to be destroyed. This is the process of the seven last plagues and of the judgment that's going to follow them. And so here is this picture, and everyone is now thinking, yay, the judge has come, justice will be served, this is a good thing, even though it's going to look like a frightening thing. Even though it's going to be, oh, this is a bad thing, What's happening here is symbolic. It's meant to help us see that God is still at work, even in a world that is filled with these injustices. So that leads us to chapter 16. And now let's swim our way through this one. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Notice where they're being poured out. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. And ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. And it turned into blood like that of a dead person. And every living thing in the sea died. 
The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets. And you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. There's something very similar about these judgments. But God's wrath is always a touchy thing, right? At least for me, it's something that you always kind of have to wrestle with. It's taking, or two things are kind of taking place. One of the things that we see is he allows human wickedness to kind of work itself out. You reap what you sow. And God allows that to take place, and his wrath shows up in the consequences of human action. And second, he steps in more directly to stop it, right? He calls it out, and when he does so, he calls it out and deals with it at that time. And both of these are a reason to, again, thank God. It's good that things do have consequences. It helps us to learn from the small things to the big things. Of course, some people do learn and some people don't. And it's good that God intervenes in different ways and shows judgment in other areas. And sometimes if correction doesn't meet the level of the crime, then the crime actually isn't clear. When I had a lesson yesterday with a dog that was just so freaked out, any form of correction and the dog just started yelling and screaming and went belly up as if it was dying, right? It's like, oh, don't get me, don't get me. It's like, I haven't even done anything, but the dog was just that temperament. And so with the dog of that temperament, you don't have to do a lot because it thinks everything is a lot. But then you get other dogs and it doesn't matter what you do. They say, is that all you got? You know, and then you have to meet them where they're at and force them to understand that there's consequences to their action. And so how hard they push, you have to push that hard and a little bit more, right? And so sometimes the crimes of humanity that take place, the judgment to act, accurately deal with those crimes has to be at least matched to those crimes, right? And those are kind of the things that we see. It's interesting here that the first four plagues are a mixture of both these types of wrath. We see kind of both of them showing up. And again, this is deeply symbolic language. This is seen when the angel's pouring bowls of wrath, right? That, that's a symbol. It's trying to convey something. It's an image so that we can see it. Not that there's big angels somewhere pouring out something all over the earth and the world, right? That's not what we're supposed to be seeing. We're supposed to get this as a sign image. God is doing something, and here's the picture that he gives us to see that. 
And the point of the first four wraths seems clear that God will not allow the earth, the natural elements, right? He talks about sea, rivers, sun. He will not allow neutral elements themselves to just go without giving some kind of judgment. He'll allow these things to pass judgment on humanity that bears God's image, but are still rejecting God's responsibility for themselves and his creation, right? Humanity is supposed to be looking after God's creation. That includes all the people. That includes all the environment. That is what we were supposed to do in the garden. God gave man this dominion. And so we are responsible for this. And now we're seeing that this dominion is actually bringing about a sense of judgment as we are not dealing with these things correctly. These judgments are the entire world where, as before, remember the seals and the trumpets, only part of the world was harmed and destroyed. And again, this is symbolic, but here it's everything. They are warning to those who need to repent. And and here what is missing is the call to repentance. It's It's almost like you had your chance. And it's, it's done. And now this is the consequence of that action. right? There comes a time when there's the consequence. And I don't know how that all works, but at some point there has to be the judgment. right? At some point there has to be an accountability. At some point there has to be a, a payment for the things that were taken. And so this is really symbolic saying that this is happening, that this is happening now. There's definitely a lot of symbols here that are similar. Um, This is, you know, all the seas die, the rivers turn to blood again, similar to the plagues in Egypt. There is no more space, though, here to repent. These plagues are the beginning of that long process, which will end in chapter 20, eventually, where God will rid his world first in this chapter of those who have assisted in the destruction and decay, and then through 17 and 18 in the great imperial systems that have set up massive structures of injustice, and finally in chapters 19 and 20 of the dark powers that are behind those systems themselves, ending with death and Hades themselves. And so this long, powerful sequence of thought tells us clearly that we are at face not with an ill-tempered divine being or careless ruler, that we are dealing with a judge who cares about justice, who allows us to reap what we sow, and then we'll make sure that it's we're accountable for those things, right? It's important. God who made the world and whose love has been generous and displayed on the cross with his own life and the life of his son, the lamb, who shares you know, the throne of God. If God does not hate the wickedness of the evils in every society that devalues people, that dehumanizes people and uses all these things for self-indulgence, then God... God wouldn't be good. If God just did not care about injustice, it would not be a good. And so this is showing 
and giving a symbol that God does care, that creation does care, that the earth itself is in rebellion against these things. I just watched a documentary a couple of nights ago on water. It was so amazing. You know, we don't realize how much water we use for, you know, we think, oh, yeah, you know, you do the lawn or you wash dishes or you drink water, shower. But I forget how many liters is used just to eat a hamburger because of all the alfalfa and grains that are feeding that cow, right? And so it's like water is something that we just use, 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 and we think it's an endless supply, but it's not. And pretty soon there's going to be this kind of more and more water crisis as water keeps being used without any accountability for it, right? And and so here's one of those things where if you're not careful, these kinds of things will happen. And, And the whole point here, I believe, is when you've got a system of rule that uses people and things for themselves to indulge, there is going to be the consequences, right? It happens everywhere to all systems, and we talked about this a few times, and this is really the case. If we do not take accountability for our actions and how we live in God's world with God's people and all of God's creation, there's going to be an accountability for those things. Um, But sometimes... Love lets things run their course, right? Sometimes letting people reap what they've sown is the only way to reveal the evils, especially to those people. Yeah, I don't know. Um, So this is very reminiscent of Pharaoh and the plagues of Egypt. Again, where... Plague after plague was poured out. And and I believe this is what is meant by the angels pouring out the bulls of his wrath on earth, the sea and the rivers and all these things. I think it is God's judgment on them and all their actions, just like it was in Egypt with Pharaoh. All those plagues were there so that they would have to deal with the consequences that they would not um, return to God. Verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bull on the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent of what they, they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the king from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are domestic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains closed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place of the Hebrew. To the place, uh, where am I? Okay, they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. 
The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a 100 pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Again, I don't believe that John is writing a sequential order of how things are going to happen, even as it says it is done in verse 17. This language is warning uh, the chance to change and not deal with it has come to an end, right? That the beasts would rather than suffer um, or rather than repent, they would choose to go down with the beasts and suffer and be then to be vindicated with the lamb. The fifth plague is a direct attack on the beast's throne. It's not given a special location or specific location, Um, But it's a strike at the heart of the beast system, making it collapse under its own weight. Um, The darkness, again, recalls the plagues of Egypt, reminds us again that the point of the plagues is the destruction of the oppressor in order so that the oppressed might escape and that worship can take place. The sixth plague awakens again, as in chapter 9, the deep-seated fear about the enemy to the east. In their case, it was be Parthia. The Euphrates River was a natural kind of boundary that was set and a barrier. Relatively, it was easy to defend because of that. But if the six angels' bowl, when poured out, dries up the river so that to prepare the way of different kinds of exodus and actually an invasion, instead of the children of Israel going out on dry land to the, through the Red Sea, the kings from the East Canal charge with their armies across the river and attack. And I believe that John is showing that there is threats, that this kingdom, Rome, is uh, vulnerable that there is going to be a time when it falls. And I think he's naming one of those threats with the kings to the east. At that time, that would be something that they would think of that would have that kind of identity to it. Um, And so this is kind of taking place. The seventh bowl goes into the air, and that's kind of the space between heaven and earth the place of spirits and powers and influence, this will finish it all, right? This is the whole wicked work coming to completion. And we saw this in chapter 8, verse 5. We saw it in chapter 11, verse 9. We see this sequence of judgment, the collision between heaven and earth, and it results again in this thunder and lightning and earthquakes. And again, it's symbolic. In Zechariah, Chapter 12, Jerusalem is split apart by an earthquake, but it wasn't a real earthquake, right? It was a dividing of the nation, but it is explained in an earthquake. In verse 19, the great city that is mentioned, is it Rome? 
that would be kind of the likely guess, is split into three. And the other cities collapse as well. Like Jericho before the trumpets of Joshua, they just come tumbling down. Islands flee, mountains disappear. John's hearers would have no problem really getting the point. That is that the collapse of, not the collapse of the physical earth, but the collapse of this empire, this social, political system is taking place. Terrible things happen when a society crumbles, right? If our society were all of a sudden the whole infrastructure would collapse and there was no longer any police and there was no longer any military and there was no longer any water and there was no longer any grocery stores, Oh my gosh, you can imagine the mayhem. And, and so he is talking about this kind of you know, collapse taking place in this city where destruction happens and it is devastating, right? This powerful empire, the, the beast that he's talking about is coming down and there is this judgment that is being passed on it. And it's a fitting metaphor, the earthquakes and the huge hailstones and all these things. It's a great way to bring our imaginations into an understanding of what it's like when a system that is thought to be so strong comes down and collapses. God will allow the lie that's at the heart of this pagan society to finally be exposed and crack like the crust of the earth, right? And just like those, you know, platelets or whatever they're called, you know, shift and all of a sudden things come undone, the same thing is going to be happening against this city. And God remembers Babylon, he says in verse 19. Chapter 17 to 18 is going to touch more on that point. But part of the final judgment of the last bowl of wrath is the judgment on the city that has become the world's whore. And that's what he talks about in the next few chapters, right? Only when her lie has been exposed and she's been destroyed can we appreciate what it means to belong to the people that John calls the bride, right? And that's the variation that we have. We have the people who are living for this system, this beast that is a defilement to God and his creation and tension, and then we have his bride. And those two are contrasted. And what John is going to be doing in the next chapters is trying to bring about the clarity of God's dealing with all that is happening. From chapter 6, how long, how long before you deal with this, John through these chapters is saying, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, and it's going to be complete. Okay? And now for us, looking back, and looking where Rome is now, and it is no more, right? We see that there's truth to these words. You know, and again, we want to find what well, was it a prophetic? Did it happen like this, this, and this? But the whole point is it happened. That Rome fell, and it was really under its own deeds, 
right? They became so indulgent that they were negligent. And that negligence allowed their own fall. And so it was them and their deeds that brought about the just reward for all that they had done. And we're going to see that take place in Rome, but it, of course, is a, a picture of so many things. How many government systems that abuses people come to an end because eventually people say no, and eventually it can't maintain itself. You can't treat people like you know objects of merchandise and succeed at anything. You can't treat God's creation as something for you to indulge in and it not rebel back. You can't use the world and all the people and things in the world just to feed your own desire and it not have consequences that will come back to you. And so this is, I think, a picture of all those things but amplified dealing with Rome and all that Rome was, all that Rome meant to the people, and God bringing about this case and this judgment for Rome. Let me see. That's all I got. Any questions or thoughts? I I believe the symbolic idea here is blood, right, and that of Egypt as well. And so the second angel poured his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like the dead person and everything in the sea died. I think the idea the water became blood is symbolic again of Egypt and of life. I I think that's really the symbolism. Um, I suppose it could have been. Uh, You know, all it says is it was blood. Yeah, I mean, I I understand there's a lot of things that we can speculate about because we see, you know, that our resources as a planet are important, right? Um, It's important to be aware of these things. And if we don't, aren't good stewards of these things, then, yeah, it's going to be a problem for us. And I think we were supposed to be good stewards. I think God is intent for us is to be good stewards of all these things. Um, And I think we can be still, but there has to be an ownership to these things. I mean, there's just so much done for money and power, you know, and there are so many documentaries now that start to uncover some of the things and you start thinking, oh my gosh, I never knew all this was going on. You know, even like that, documentary on SeaWorld and, you know, called Blackfish, if you guys ever saw that. It's like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I haven't been to SeaWorld since. Won't go. You know, it, it just, that it's terrible. And the, you start seeing some of these things and you say, okay, yeah, there's got to be a better way to do this. You know, one of the things in this documentary I saw about water was talking about how they build, you know, farms in the middle of the desert. And then they have to get water to them so that they can grow crops. And it's like, why are you putting it there? You're wasting so much water just to get it there where you have a place that has water, it's easier, and it could flourish, you know, change how you do things. Um, But sometimes we don't change until it's coming and knocking at our door, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, what's happening? Well, and then there's, you know, a lot of, you know, the desalinization of water, 
if that can become more efficient. You know, right now it's not real efficient. They do have that in Israel and a few other countries in Saudi Arabia, um, but there's still questions of how good that's going to be. But um, anyway. I know that they said, like, in a bottle of Coke, you know, you think how much of it is water, but there's more water used to make the packaging than the Coke. All these interesting things. On that note, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, I do pray again that you would allow everything that we've looked at here to spark more questions, more conversations, not only with us, but with us and you. Um, bless the things that we have looked at help us God to see um, your hand at work to recognize that you are good you are just and Lord we can trust you and we thank you that you are merciful Lord even as we see that repentance doesn't take place even with these plagues just as it didn't play, take place with Egypt there's still a chance for repentance but it shows up in a different way Help us to just yearn for that as well as we look in the weeks to come, how you reveal yourself even more fully. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.